Please pray with me. Father, we pray as we come this afternoon to your word that we would behold wondrous things from your word. And Father, that you would show us wonderful things from your word. And Father, most especially, that you would show us our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Sisyphus, Sisyphus is a famous figure from Greek mythology. Uh, Sisyphus is punished by the Greek god of Zeus, Greek god Zeus in Greek mythology, and his punishment for all eternity is he has to try to roll a huge stone up a large hill. And as soon as that stone gets near the top of the hill, every time it slides right back down to the bottom and he has to start over again. He has to do this for all eternity, seek to push a large rock up a hill only for that large rock to roll back down the hill and for him to start all over again. Uh, if you have ever heard the phrase rolling or pushing a rock uphill, this is where it comes from. It means a task that takes quite a lot of work and will probably never be finished, an endless, very difficult task. Uh, well, Sisyphus's, Sisyphus's, however you're supposed to say that uh, with possessive, uh, well, his eternally unsuccessful effort to push a rock to the top of a hill is a good illustration of what legalism looks like. Uh, what is legalism? One theologian defined it this way, legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. Legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. So this is, this is basically the view of every world religion other than Christianity in the world. Do this and God will be pleased with you. Be good and you will receive good karma in return. Be kind and generous and you'll be reincarnated as something better. Pray so many times a day and fast and hope that God will be pleased with you. But what I want you to see today is that legalism is a distortion of the gospel. At its heart, legalism denies or at least undermines the grace of God and seeks to replace it with a works-based righteousness. Legalism tells you to try to earn God's favor and, and love or earn salvation by what you do. And so a, a legalistic view of Christianity just reduces Christianity to a list of rules. Uh, obedience is important in the Christian life. Holiness is important in the Christian life. But within legalism, following rules becomes the standard of one's righteousness. But trying to earn a place with God or earn God's forgiveness by what you do is a lot like Sisyphus trying to push that rock uphill. No matter how good you are, you will never reach the top. You will never make it to God through your own efforts. Uh, instead, what the gospel says, what Jesus says is believe. Repent of your sins, humble yourself, say, I cannot do it, and believe in me. I, Jesus, did what you could not do. I earned the righteousness. I obeyed when you could not do it. Rest in me. Salvation is only in me. As one author put it, legalism says, I do or do not do. The gospel says, I cannot do, but Jesus did. Well, the gospel says that we cannot earn a place with God, but Jesus has earned a place for us. The answer is not to try harder, but to rest in Christ's work of redemption. Legalism says that God loves you more when you obey. 
The gospel says that God loves you and is pleased with you because he loves Jesus and is pleased with Jesus. Our good works then are the fruits of what God has already done in our lives, not the way that we earn a place with God. Now, why am I telling you all this? As you might imagine, it is because the contrast between legalism and the gospel of grace is really at the heart of our text for this week. It takes center stage in a series of conflicts that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, have with Jesus. And so we're going to examine these conflicts. And as we do, I want you to see how legalism is opposed to the gospel. I want you to ask yourself how you might be tempted towards legalism. It is a very common thing for Christians to be tempted with. And finally, I want to encourage you to rest in Christ. So the main idea for this afternoon is that true righteousness is not found in rules or regulations. True righteousness is not found in rules or regulations, but in Jesus Christ. So if you have not already, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 33, and we're going to be going all the way through Luke 6, 11. Uh, so the first conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees is over the issue of fasting. So look with me at verse 33. Then they, they being the Pharisees, then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants new because he said the old is better. Well, if you remember back to the sermon from, from last week, we saw some of the first hints of legalism from the Pharisees as they questioned Jesus for eating with sinners and tax collectors. And basically, their point is, is, is you who call yourself a, a righteous teacher of the law, hold yourself up as a teacher. How are you associating with those people? We, we Pharisees would not associate. We would not go eat. We would not fellowship with people like this. They, they saw themselves as far more righteous and holy. Now, that attitude continues in our text for today, as, as we just saw in the verses that we read. These religious leaders accused Jesus and his disciples of a, of a lack of religious devotion because they do not fast, and they say that they do not pray. Now, what is in, important to understand is, as we come to this text, what is important to understand is that the Old Testament law only required fasting one day per year. That's it. The Day of Atonement. Uh, the Old Testament law requires God's people to fast on the Day of Atonement. However, by the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had added about four or five other annual fasts to the calendar during other feasts and festivals. And then even on top of that, the Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had begun fasting twice a week. They had begun fasting twice every week. And so the Pharisees fasted far, far more than the law required. And now this was not a, a problem in and of itself. They were free to fast as much as, as they wanted to fast. The problem was that they used this as a measure of righteousness. Uh, they fasted so much to be, appear more holy. 
they fasted so that others would think they were righteous, and they judged those who did not do the same thing as they did as less righteous. So Jesus, he makes this point clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches, whenever you fast, so he's talking to his disciples, Jesus says, whenever you fast, do not be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Well, Jesus' point is that when the Pharisees did this twice every week fast, they made sure everybody knew about it by the way they dressed, by the way their face was. They kind of acted miserable. They acted as if they were hungry. They dressed to show they were fasting. They wanted everybody to know. They wanted to be seen as righteous and specifically more righteous than anybody else. See, I'm, I'm far more pleasing to God because I fast twice a week. So what Jesus is condemning is, is in, the, in, the sermon on a, in the Sermon on the Mount is practicing an outward righteousness just for the purpose of being seen and being praised by others. Now, as a, as a quick aside, I actually think this is why Jesus does not respond to the accusation that his disciples do not pray. Uh, he did not respond because it was not true. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples not to pray like the Pharisees in a similar way as the Pharisees fast. They would pray in grand public displays so that everyone would see it. Uh, so I think the point that Jesus is making is when well, my disciples pray, they just don't pray like you do just to be seen by others. Brothers and sisters, I think if we stop and we kind of reflect on this behavior or this attitude of the Pharisees, I think we can realize that we struggle with the same thing at times. It may not look exactly like the Pharisees, but just simply ask yourself, where do you, where do you desire the praise of others? If you come together in a, in a small group Bible study, are you quicker to confess your sin and ask for your brothers and sisters to pray for you or to help you? Or are you quicker to tell of all the ways that you have been faithfully following the Lord? Do you get offended when others do not recognize your service in the church or praise you for your service to the church? Do you only seek to serve in public ways that will be seen by others? The, the problem with the Pharisees that Jesus was pointing out was not that they fasted a lot. It was that they fasted as a way to exalt themselves. And then the, the other problem that he points out with the Pharisees is that they judged those who did not fast as often as they did. They judged based on man-made standards, and this really is just the inevitable result of legalism. And Christians often do the same thing. It's not uncommon to find churches and, and Christians that add their own rules to, to those that are listed in the Bible and then treat those rules that they have added with the same authority as Scripture so depending on where you have come from, some of these may sound familiar. If you are a Christian, perhaps there is an expectation that you wear a suit to church. Or perhaps that you're, there's an expectation that you will not wear any jewelry to church. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't dance. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't have any drink of alcohol. If you're a Christian, you should faithfully go and confess your sins weekly to a priest. And strict obedience to these rules that we do not find in Scripture becomes the most important thing. And the end result is that it produces a judgmental heart. You think those who wear jewelry or do not wear a suit to church are less holy than you. And you see somebody have a drop of alcohol and you think that they are one step away from abandoning the faith altogether. And just look around you in this, in this room. 
We have a lot of different cultures represented here. We have a lot of different people represented here. Praise be to God. That's a wonderful thing. But one danger in having so many people from so many different places here is that you can be tempted to judge others based on their different cultural practices. You can be, you can be tempted to hold up your culture's way of doing things as the standard of righteousness. We probably all do this actually in some ways without even realizing it or without intending to. But it's just a caution to be careful not to make your way of doing things and your culture's way of doing things the same thing as Scripture, to not make that the standard of righteousness. Legalism values customs and traditions more than it values Scripture and more than it values love. True righteousness is not found in rules and regulations, but in Jesus Christ. Well, as we see this first conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, the other thing that would probably be helpful to know about fasting in order to understand kind of what is going on in this conflict is that particularly in the Old Testament, fasting was, was often or even primarily associated with, with sorrow or mourning. Now, this might actually explain why John the Baptist's disciples, John's disciples, get mentioned in this text right alongside of the disciples of the Pharisees. Uh, it may be that, that John the Baptist was already in prison at this time. We know he goes to prison. It may be that he's already been beheaded by this time. And so it may be that his disciples are expressing sorrow in their fasting. But this connection between fasting and sorrow, it also helps us to make sense of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. So look again at verse 34. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. So what Jesus is, is saying here to those that are questioning him and his disciples is that it would be wrong for his disciples to mourn. And the reason it would be wrong is because Jesus is with them. So Jesus describes himself as a groom and just as if it would be, just as it would be wrong to, to mourn or fast in the middle of a, a wedding feast and a wedding celebration, so it would be wrong to fast while Jesus is with them. Jesus' is, presence is to be a joy to his people. It is to be a joy to his disciples. They are to celebrate it. And in his answer, Jesus points forward to the, the time of his death he says, but the time will come when the groom, or me, will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Jesus was predicting his death, the time that he would be taken away. In John chapter 16, Jesus again speaking to his disciples about his death, he says, you will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy, and it will be a joy that no one can take away. I actually think what, what Jesus is saying in, here in Luke and, and also in John is that the time of mourning would be the period between his death and resurrection. Now, it could be the, the time that we are in now, this time where Jesus has ascended and he's seating at the right hand of the Father. We are waiting for him to come again. But, but I think the joy his disciples had when they saw the resurrected Lord is the joy that would never be taken away from them. Even now, Jesus is present with us by his spirit. There is a, you may have heard this term before, there's an already not yet aspect to that. We have the joy in the presence of Jesus now, but we don't have it fully. We, we long, we say, come Lord Jesus, come. We, we long for Jesus to come again. 
But yet, as, as God's people, I think we have a joy that can, and we should have a joy that cannot be taken away. Our joy will be made complete when he comes again, but we have the joy of his presence by his spirit even now. Now, look, I don't think that means it is not appropriate to mourn or fast now. That's not what I'm trying to say. I think we should. Uh, there is that already and not yet aspect to our joy as Christians. But as Christians, we can rejoice because God is with us and he is on his throne. He is ruling and he is reigning. I don't have time today because of how much we have to cover of really going into to fasting and, and teaching a lot about the Christian discipline of fasting. But if you would like to learn more about it, which I would encourage you to do, we have a, a book back there on our library on our library shelf called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. He has a chapter there on fasting. If you would like to read more about the Christian discipline of fasting, I would encourage you to check out that book, uh, take it back, and, and go read that chapter. And the, well, Jesus' message is not just about fasting. Jesus' message is more than fasting. He goes on in, in these verses to talk about new and old garments and, and new and old wineskins. I think sometimes we can read that, and at first we're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? It would be helpful to understand kind of the, the mental image that Jesus is painting. New wine, wine that had not fermented. I had to read about this. I'm not a winemaking expert, but it will produce gas during the fermentation process, and it will expand. So if you were put it, put, to put it into old wineskins, which by that time had grown hard and brittle, they were very, I don't know if fragile is the right word, but inflexible. Well, during that fermentation process, as the gas is being produced, the wine is expanding, those would burst. They had no room to accommodate that. So you put new wine into new wineskins, which were still flexible. They could expand along with the wine. So that is the, the picture that Jesus is painting. Well, in a similar manner, if uh, you put a patch on an old garment with a new garment, Jesus says, that would be a little ridiculous. First, why would you tear a new garment to put a patch on an old garment? Uh, second, that patch would not match the old garment, so it wouldn't make much sense. Actually, it would probably do more damage because as soon as you go wash it again, that new garment will shrink, the patch will shrink, it'll make the tear even worse as it pulls on the old garment. So it doesn't make any sense. So what is Jesus's point? Well, as one writer put it, the old man-made legalistic system of the Pharisees could not handle the grace revolution of Jesus. The old man-made legalistic system of the Pharisees could not handle the grace revolution of Jesus. In other words, the new wine of the gospel could not fit into the old and brittle wineskin of the man-made rules and regulations of the Pharisees. I think Jesus is, is also announcing here the beginning of the new covenant. He is the fulfillment of the law. He's pointing us to something new and the doing away with the old covenant. But in context, I think his, his focus is more specifically on the fact that the legalistic rules and regulations of the Pharisees are incompatible with the gospel. True righteousness is not found in rules or regulations, but in Jesus Christ. And we see in, in verse 39 in the closing of this, this conflict with the Pharisees that Jesus actually delivers a rebuke to them because they are unwilling to give up their old wine their rules and their regulations, their man-made righteousness, and follow him. They felt more comfortable trying to earn their way to God. And so, friends, what you need to see from these verses is that you cannot earn your way to God. No amount of fasting, 
no amount of church attendance, no amount of good deeds can save you. It's like Sisyphus trying to push the rock uphill. It is impossible. The task will never be done. Jesus' message, the gospel message, is not do these things and find salvation, but believe in me and find salvation. And this theme continues in the remaining verses that we have to study this afternoon. Next, we're going to turn our attention to two conflicts that Jesus has over the Sabbath. Two conflicts that Jesus has over the Sabbath day. Look with me at Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We see the first of these conflicts. On a Sabbath, he, he being Jesus, on a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, again, to, to understand these verses, it is helpful to understand a few things about the Old Testament law. Uh, first, what the disciples were doing by walking through some fields and plucking a few heads of grain was permitted by the Old Testament law. The Pharisees are not upset by the fact that they're plucking grain. They're upset by the fact that they were doing it on the Sabbath day. And God had commanded the, the nation of Israel to observe the Sabbath, to rest on the seventh day. It's part of the Ten Commandments, and it's a, it's a command, it's an instruction that, that God took very seriously. In fact, if you read through the book of Numbers, you'll come to Numbers 15 and find a, an Israelite man who was put to death for not observing the Sabbath. But really, the, the Sabbath command is, is simply that God's people should rest. That's really about it. So while they're wandering in, in the wilderness, they're told not to collect manna on the Sabbath day. In fact, God doesn't even provide manna for them to collect. Uh, this theme continues as they enter the promised land. They are told to refrain from harvesting or, or plowing their crops. They're, they're supposed to cease, supposed to stop their ordinary work. But that's really all that God commands. He, he simply commands the Sabbath to be a day of rest. But once again, as it is so apt to do, legalism crept in. The Jewish people added all sorts of additional man-made rules about the Sabbath. If, if I want to be righteous by being seen observing the Sabbath, well, the best way to be seen as more righteous is to add a whole bunch more rules that I can follow regarding the Sabbath. And so that's what they did. There were actually 39 categories of things that they were not allowed to do on the Sabbath by this time, things that they had made, things like sowing, plowing, reaping, kneading, baking, lighting, or putting out a fire, carrying one thing from one place to another. And within each of these 39 categories of things that the Israelites were not allowed to do, that, that the, the Israelite system had kind of grown up and said they could not do, there were all sorts of rules explaining exactly what would be considered carrying one thing from one place to another or, or baking. And so there was hundreds, maybe even thousands of rules. The, the rules were seemingly endless. Now, to give you a, a modern-day example of what this, this looks like, there are some sections in, in New York City where there are, are big communities of Orthodox Jews still living today, those who really seek to faithfully practice Judaism. And in some of the buildings where there are primi primarily Orthodox Jews living, there are things called Sabbath elevators in which on the Sabbath day, 
the elevator stops on each and every floor of the building. And that is so those who enter the elevator do not have to push the button to go to the floor they want because that would be considered work. I remember, I remember each time that Delane and I, or that Delane went to the hospital to give birth to one of our children. I would sleep on a couch in one of the hospital rooms. We would stay for a couple of days in the hospital. And as you might imagine, the advice that the doctors and nurses would always give to Delane following childbirth was, get a lot of rest. Rest, you need to recover. However, these, these same nurses who would give the instruction to rest would then come into her room five to 10 times every night to do things like check her vital signs or introduce a change of nursing shift or some other small, totally unnecessary task. It was exhausting. I mean, I didn't give birth to a child and I was exhausted. You felt like you got like an hour of rest before some other nurse would come in and be checking. They made it nearly impossible to rest. Well, this is, this is kind of like what the Pharisees and other Jewish religious leaders did to the Sabbath. They took what was supposed to be a day of rest and made so many rules and regulations that it was a burden, that it was a burden to the people to try to follow all of these rules. Friends, churches and families can be like this as well. I mean, we see in our, we see in our text that the disciples are, are not working. They're simply trying to eat. You know, the Pharisees accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. The thing is that they're not breaking God's Sabbath law. They're just breaking one of these hundreds of man-made rules that had grown up around God's Sabbath law. That is not the only aspect of, of, of legalism that, that Jesus points out in this, in this conflict with the Pharisees. He, he points out another aspect of legalism, and that is the fact that when we are tempted by legalism, when we fall into the trap of legalism, we are so concerned with following rules that we neglect the spirit or the purpose of the law. In other words, we ignore things like justice and mercy and love and compassion and kindness. So this is, is one of the reasons why in verse 4 Jesus mentioned that David and his men ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Angie just read about this, this event from the life of David. What David and his men did was technically not lawful. It's not really ambiguous. It was, it was not lawful for them to eat that bread. But neither Jesus nor the Old Testament condemn David. Why is that? Well, I think it's because showing mercy and considering people's needs, extreme hunger in this place, fleeing for your life is more important than religious ritual. In Mark's gospel, which records this, this same event, the same conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus goes on to say this to the Pharisees. He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Yes, the, the Sabbath was a way to, to honor God, as his people rested, it was a way to trust in the Lord, but it was also meant for their good. It was meant that they might rest. It was not meant to so tightly restrict people that they could not pluck a few heads of grain to have a snack when they're hungry, or that they could not do good to others. And so what Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees had missed the purpose of the law. They had become so focused, so focused on external obedience that they had neglected their own hearts. They saw righteousness as simply something outward, simply something to perform and not something internal. 
brothers and sisters, the abundant witness of God's word is that true righteousness springs from the heart. This is why Jesus came to give us new hearts. It's not that obedience doesn't matter, but Jesus condemned the Pharisees for practicing an outward righteousness only. An outward righteousness only, which is no righteousness at all. So what about you? And do you find yourself more concerned with outward, visible forms of righteousness or with your heart? Do you seek to obey and follow the Lord only when others are around, where it will be seen? Or is it a righteousness and desire to follow the Lord that springs from your heart? There's another reason that, that Jesus mentioned this event from David's life here in this conflict with the Pharisees. And as we have seen Jesus do throughout Luke's gospel, he is making a claim of authority. Jesus is making a claim of authority and mentioning, mentioning this event from David's life. Look again at verse 5. Then Jesus told them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. As one scholar puts it, David was the Lord's anointed, the future king of Israel, through whose ancestors the Messiah, the Son of David, or Jesus, would come. By pointing to David's example, Jesus is making a claim to possess authority equivalent to David's, or at least equivalent to David's, we should say. If David did not sin by eating the consecrated bread, how much less did David's greater son and Lord sin by doing so? Jesus was making a, a claim to reinterpret or perhaps properly interpret the law to include the Sabbath law. Jesus was the fulfillment of that law. Brothers and sisters, you may be sitting here wondering why most Christians today do not observe the Sabbath in the same way that the Jews did. It is in the Ten Commandments. I mean, we gather for corporate worship here on Friday in the UAE, not Sunday. And Sunday itself is not the Jewish Sabbath day. Well, it's because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Our Sabbath rest is not a day. It is a person. Sabbath day is not a rest. It is a person. What does it mean for Jesus to be your Sabbath rest? What does that mean? Well, first, for, for those of you who are not Christians, it means that you stop trying to push a rock uphill. It means you rest from your work. You rest from trying to earn Christ's righteousness or God's righteousness on your own or his salvation on your own. But you rest in Jesus's finished work on the cross. Jesus is the only one who could perfectly fulfill the will of the Father, to perfectly obey the Father. You need his righteousness, not a righteousness of your own. And that righteousness comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews writes that a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. What that author in Hebrews is, is pointing us forward to is the rest that God's people will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth. There will be no enemies. There will be no sorrow they will enjoy perfect rest. But the question that the author of Hebrews asked surrounding this idea that a Sabbath rest remains for God's people is how do you enter that rest? How do you enter this rest that remains for God's people? Well, it's not by working. It's not by seeking to earn God's righteousness on your own. Salvation does not come by going to confession every week. It does not come by praying so many times a day and fasting. It does not come from doing so much good that it's going to hopefully outweigh your bad. There is no salvation in those things. It comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. To rest in him is to bring your burden of sin to him, to bring your inadequacy to him, your inability to produce a righteousness of your own to him, and ask for him to save you. Well, for those of you who are Christians, resting in Christ means that he is your source of comfort and rest. If your only hope of refreshment and rest is time off from work or a night to yourself, if your only hope for rest or comfort is a, is a new job, if your only hope for, for rest and relaxation is that your circumstances will change or that your source of anxiety will go away, then you are not, you are not resting in Christ. Uh, even a subtle form of legalism is present when you believe that God's love for you depends mainly on your obedience. When you believe that God loves you more, he is more pleased with you on those days where you obey him better, and that he is displeased with you and loves you less on those days where you struggle more with your sin. When you're worried that, that God is going to make something bad happen to you because you got up late and didn't read your Bible that morning. It's a form of legalism when your emotions or understanding of God's love for you depend on your circumstances and your performance. It is not resting in Christ. God does not love you for what you have done. He loves you because of who he is. God is love. He demonstrated his love by sending his son. Jesus demonstrated his love by dying for you. If you have repented of your sins, you can rest in that love. You do not have to earn that love. He has given it to you in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. To rest in Christ is to bring your burdens to him. It is to pray. It's to trust in his promises, to find your comfort in him, to believe that he loves you, and to look forward to the eternal rest to come, where we enjoy that rest that we have now imperfectly, but we enjoy it perfectly. And brothers and sisters, Jesus died to forgive you of your sins and to bring you rest. Brothers and sisters, one thing that you can do to, to help you rest in Jesus now is to gather with God's people. Though we are not required to observe the Sabbath in the same way that, that Israel did, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. It is not a day. Jesus does command that his people gather together. Let me repeat that. Jesus commands that Christians regularly attend a local church. Why? Well, there are a number of reasons, but one reason is that it encourages us to rest in Him. When someone is baptized, we are reminded that God has called us into His rest. When we see a brother or sister who we know are enduring a great suffering or a great trial still singing out to God, it reminds us to rest in Jesus in the midst of our own trials. When we take the Lord's Supper, we look forward to the eternal rest of all of God's people, even as we look back to that day when Christ purchased that rest for us. The gathering of God's people is meant for your good. Well, all of this kind of comes together in the, the last conflict that we see between Jesus and the Pharisees when, when Jesus heals a man who has a crippled hand. Now, this, this event further reveals the hard hearts of the Pharisees that are opposed to Jesus and do not recognize his authority, and it further exposes the legalism of the Pharisees who are so focused 
on outward righteousness that they ignore their hearts and they ignore doing good to someone else. Uh, so look with me starting in verse 6 of chapter 6. On another, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save a life or destroy it? After looking around at them all, he told, them, he told him, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. The, the Pharisees' understanding of the law was so legalistic that they would rather this man continue to suffer than for Jesus to heal him on the Sabbath. Uh, they were, their understanding was so backwards that they thought it was good and right to refrain from showing mercy or, or doing good to their neighbor. But in this healing, Jesus exposes the wickedness of their hearts. He asks these, these men in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And so Jesus makes the issue abundantly clear. He, he says that for them to do nothing would be the same thing as to do evil. Uh, theirs was a sin of, of omission, not commission. And brothers and sisters, you should know that God cares about both what you do and what you do not do. Not do. The, Pharisees healed, the Pharisees here failed to be merciful and just. This is where all their, their focus on external regulation had led them. God's desire was, was not for legalistic regulations, but instead for hearts that loved their neighbors and sought their good. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But friends, we see all this sprung from hearts that were opposed to God. They were opposed to Jesus. That is why they had gathered there that day, so that they might bring a charge against Jesus. And though Jesus once again demonstrated exactly who he is, he, he knew their thoughts, we see in verse 8, he heals this man. The Pharisees still do not worship or recognize him for who he is, the Lord of the Sabbath. Instead, when Jesus heals the man, they were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. Friends, this is where their legalism led them. It led them to miss Jesus. It led them to oppose Jesus. And friends, this is where legalism always leads. Legalism is opposed to the gospel of grace that Jesus brings. It doubts the love that God has shown in Christ. Legalism is concerned only with following rules, with self-righteousness, by practicing righteousness in front of others. The gospel is concerned with the heart. Legalism tells you that you can earn your way to God. Legalism tells you to keep pushing that rock up the hill. Legalism tells you to work and work and work. The gospel tells you to rest. The gospel tells you that Jesus worked on your behalf. He successfully pushed the rock to the top of the hill. He did all that God required. It tells you that he earned your righteousness and he paid for your sin. It tells you that he demonstrated his love for you by dying on the cross. True righteousness is not found in rules or regulations. True righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, remember that God's love for you is not dependent on how well you performed that day or how, how obedient you are. That's legalism speaking. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Are you called to be holy as Christians? Definitely. Are you commanded to obey? Absolutely. Faith without works is dead, as James says. The Bible contains commands, 
It is not legalism to call Christians to obey the commands of Scripture, to speak kindly, to flee from sexual immorality, to love their enemies, to not get drunk, to gather with God's people. It is not legalism to call Christians to obey the commands of Scriptures. But Christians obey to bring glory to their heavenly Father and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ who has saved them. They do not obey to earn a place with God or so that God will favor them or love them. They obey because they are grateful for what Jesus has done and want to know him more. They forgive not because they are fearful of God's wrath if they do not forgive others, but because he has forgiven them and they want to be like their Savior. They love their enemies not because they think it is a pathway to God's love or God's favor, but because when they were enemies of God, God sent his son Jesus Christ and he loved them while they were his enemies. Christians put away anger not to avoid God's anger, but because God has been slow to anger with them. When Christians go to church, uh, they do not go because they think if they do not go that they are somehow going to get bad karma in return. That God is going to be up there keeping an attendance record and knowing each and every time that they have gone to church. Now, he obviously does know those things. They go because they know that the visible church, the church gathered, is a visible picture of the gospel. It is an outpost of heaven on earth. It is a reminder of the heavenly rest that awaits for us as we gather to God's people, and they want, a bit of they want some of that taste on heaven and earth now. When Christians rebuke and correct one another, they take the log out of their own eye first. They do not do it out of self-righteousness or judgmentalism. Brothers and sisters, you can obey from a heart of gratitude and guilt. You can, sorry, you can obey from a heart of gratitude, not guilt or fear. Because Jesus came and lived the life that you have not lived. Jesus died in your place and rose again, defeating sin and death. And so you can rest in his finished work. He perfectly obeyed and took the punishment for all those times that you did not obey. All those times that you failed to do the things that you should do. And all those times that you failed to have an attitude that was pleasing to him. True righteousness is not found in rules or regulations, but in Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come and we... Uh...